All right, if you uh, have been with us the last few weeks, you know that uh, we've been studying the Gospel of John. Uh, as each week, I've been going through and talking, begin with just a little bit about why John was written, what the Gospel of John was written for. Of course, we have four Gospels, right? Uh, but John is kind of unique in that it's different than the first three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels for a reason. They're, they're called the Synoptics because they talk about similar events. They talk about similar things. They're written to different uh, audiences, different groups of people, but they are similar. John's not. John mentions many different events that Jesus did or that occurred with the disciples and, and, and the followers. And it's very unique in its style as well. But we also know why it was written simply by what John wrote. Remember that? John 20. Let's just turn over there and read that again. John 20. <coughs> and let's read verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I mean, that's it right there. That's the reason the book is written. Know the events of Jesus. Only a portion, only a small portion of what he did were written. You ever thought about that? What else Jesus did that we don't know about? Imagine what other things he may have done that would just blow your mind, you know? And yet, by the few things that he mentioned in this book, we can have life in his name. What a wonderful promise, right? What a wonderful promise. Not only a hope of eternal life with God in heaven, but also in this life we can have true life, abundant life, great joy. Because of his love for us, his sending his son, that we may have that promise of life in his name. Well, last week we were discussing something, actually the last few weeks we've been discussing the, the, the uh, event where Jesus met the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, discussed water, living water, remember, discussed, asked her to give him a drink, and uh, then she be, realized he was at least a prophet because he told her some things about herself that he had no other way of knowing except miraculously knowing that, right? And she asked him, to, she, she began to talk about worship, right? And how uh, the Samaritans said they should worship, worship their own Gerizim. Never pronounced that right. And the Jews said, no, the proper place to worship was in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, what? True worshipers, God wants true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. It wasn't so much where they worshiped, it was how they worshiped. God is spirit, he said. God is spirit, and he wants to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And we talked about how that meant he wants true worshipers who do things out of love, not just to follow the rules, not just to obey the law, although that's there, not just to obey the commands, but out of love for God. Remember the first commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Jesus said, upon that, the grant foundation is laid of the law and the prophets. All that's laid on that one command. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If we do that, 
if we can do that, we really don't need the law, right? I mean, yeah, we need to know what's right. We need to know right from wrong, of course, and we can't necessarily know that ourselves. But if you love God, truly, your life is going to become like Jesus, right? You're going to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple. You're going to want to act, to obey, to live a life like he led. That's one of the reasons he came, to show us what it means to be a true lover of God, a true Christian, a true disciple, a true, uh, to have true life, to have the truth. Well, of course, I just said we can't necessarily know truth unless it's revealed to us, right? I mean, we can see things in the world, right? We can see the creation. We can see nature. We can say there has to be a greater being than us. How did this all get here, right? And of course, we have today all kinds of scientific things to say, oh, well, this happened or this happened. Nobody, no scientist can tell you how things got started. They have theories, of course, and they try to make these theories sound like that's fact, but they don't know. They don't truly know. There has to be a greater being, right? There has to be some something or some person, some God that started it all. And to know about this God, we have to have him revealed to us. And John 1 said, the word was in the beginning and that word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. Became a light in a dark world for which, so we could see who God was. We could see what it meant to live like God. Well, who was the first teacher, really? Who was the master teacher? Of course, Jesus, right? And he was at the well doing what? We talked about that a little bit, right? He was actually evangelizing. He was talking to a Samaritan woman who did not necessarily agree with the Jews and the things that they felt about the law, the things they believed about the law. But Jesus was teaching her through his words, and through his examples. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Let's read a few verses there about Jesus, the master teacher. I want you to see, see some things here about him. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. <clears throat> and then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus saw the multitude, and he had compassion on them. He had compassion for those who were lost, for those who needed healing. For those who needed him, by way of example, he showed that. He showed his compassion for the multitude. In that same way, we need to have compassion, right? We need to have compassion not only for each other, but for the multitude. Those out in the fields. Compassion for those who are lost. He also talked about praying being in prayer for those who are lost, being in prayer for those who need to be taught 
who need to understand the things of the gospel, to know the truth. Well, we, meet, we read many other things about evangelism, and there's other things we can glean from that. Turn back to John chapter 4 there, where we've been studying. And let's just read a couple things else about the act that occurred after the, he had the dialogue with the woman at the well. Beginning in verse, uh, uh, beginning in verse 27, chapter 4. And at, his, at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. Wait a minute. Who? What? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Hmm. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have, no, I have, he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? You see, here's an occasion where Jesus is teaching his disciples an important principle about evangelism. A important principle about sowing and reaping. And we're going to read that in a second. He evangelized one woman, a Samaritan woman, impressed her so much that she thought he might be the Christ. And she went back to town and started spreading it. Started talking about him. And guess what? People came to see and wanted to know, was this the Christ she's talking about? Could this be the one? They were amazed, obviously, right, that he knew things about her. This Jew. And remember, we talked about how the Jews would not have anything to do with the Samaritans. In fact, if they had to pass from Judea to Galilee or back, they would go around, cross the Jordan River, go around Samaria. So they didn't have to have contact with them. Yet Jesus and his disciples deliberately did that so he could have this dialogue. Apparently people from the city were making their way to see Jesus. And as the crowd was making their way, he had some things to say about that. Go back to verse 34 there and start reading there. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. All right. Well, what's he mean by this? He says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are white for harvest. They're already there. The crop is up. The crop is ripe, ready to be harvested, ready to be picked. I don't know. How many of you are farmers in here? Anybody ever farmed? What? A few of you have. Yeah. Uh, I never had to do that. My dad did. And I hated going up to Tennessee in the summers when I had to go haul hay and stuff like that. <laughs> I didn't have to do that very much, obviously. But, yeah, it was a lot, pretty hard work. I remember it very well. Actually, I didn't hate going up there. I enjoyed going up there. 
But the day we went and hauled hay, I didn't enjoy it too much. Or picked corn. What? I don't have a tractor. My granddad did, but yeah, you had a mule. Jim had a mule. So you really got some stories, I'm sure. Thank, thank goodness I didn't have to do that. Anyways, he says, He who reaps receives wages and gathers for eternal life. Farmer sows the seed, right? And he waters, takes care of the field, takes care of the crop, and then he's rewarded with the fruit, right? The harvest. Yet Jesus says something about one sows and another reaps. He says, I've sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. What's he talking about right there? Uh, what's that mean exactly? What, what's the point he's trying to make? Well, let's focus on that a little bit today, on this true saying that Jesus referred to, one sows, another reaps. This is going to provide a valuable insight into the process of winning souls, of course. The process, first of all, is the process of sowing, right? As mentioned, in farming and agriculture, sowing involves preparing the soil and planting the seed. Now, if you had to use a mule, you stood on the back of a plow, right? And that mule pulled that plow around the, around the field while you were plowing up the dirt. Thankfully, tractors were invented. Made that a little easier, right? You had to prepare that ground. You had to prepare the field to take the seed. You couldn't just throw seed out on the hard ground, right? Didn't work that way. It took time. It took some preparation. For us, maybe that meant studying a little bit. Maybe that meant getting to know people, getting to know someone, preparing them to hear what you have to say. Uh, a preparation for planning in which hearts become ripe for that, right? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of frustrating sometimes, isn't it? If you want to talk to someone or if you have talked to someone about the gospel and they don't want anything to do with it. It's not so easy to just go right up to someone and start telling them, you need to hear this, right? Most of the time, probably 99.9% probably .9 of the time, they're going to tell you to go jump in a lake, right? Tell you I don't want to hear it. There's a preparation time for that. Hearts have to first be introduced to the gospel gradually, right? There has to be something to prepare those hearts to hear what you have to say. It takes time, teaching, influence, time on your part to get ready for that. And then in farming or agriculture, you have this time where you're reaping what you've sown, right? Well, in winning souls to Christ, we have that similar concept, right? We have that similar action where we have to go and reap that harvest. Teaching and preaching and helping those who are ready to obey the gospel. There involves a conversion, and there involves a time of great joy and excitement for that, but then there also involves a time of continuing to teach, right? Continuing to help people grow. So this statement that he said, one sows, another reaps, it sounds like he's talking about farming, right? It sounds like he's talking about agriculture. But it's very pertinent 
to soul winning, very pertinent to preaching the gospel. We can reap where others have sown, right? Now, if you were on a farm, you sowed the seed, I'd say most of the time you reap the harvest, right? I doubt there are any times, maybe there was, you know, I don't know, maybe you hired some folks to come in and help you with the harvesting. But most of the time you reap what you sowed, right? And you got to see that fruit. You got to benefit from seeing that fruit produced. And winning the souls to Christ, reaping involves a similar harvest. It involves souls who've already heard the word and who decide to obey that word. And it's a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing to have been teaching or studying with someone, sowing the seed, and getting to see that fruit, that fruit come forth, that conversion come forth, reaping the harvest of your labor. Have you ever been able to see that? You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever been able to know that you had a direct influence on someone becoming Christian? What Jesus is talking about is a little different than that, right? What he's going to say is there's times when one sows, but they don't get to reap. Or there's times when someone reaps what they did not sow. And this is the case. This is what we're seeing here in Samaria, right? Jesus sent his disciples to reap where others had labored. Verse 38, we see that. Well, if that's the case, who had done the sowing? You see, they're coming out to see him because of who? The woman, right? She went back to town and she started talking about him. She started spreading the good news that this may be the Christ. They want to know about that. Jesus also, right? He was conversing with the woman in the first place. He was evangelizing, telling her about himself, helping her to understand who he was. So the disciples apparently weren't there. If they were, they weren't paying much attention. He's telling them now to go reap the harvest. So that's kind of what he's talking about here. He had sowed. The woman had continued that sowing of the seed. And now the disciples are going to reap that harvest. Of course, this can happen today, right? There's times when people seem ripe to the good news, right? Um, ready to obey the gospel and requiring little effort on our, our, ourselves to do that. One thing I think about is like, uh, do you remember when 9-11 happened? Uh, I can remember I was able to talk to people at work about religious things just off the top of my head, you know, off the top of my head. And they were willing to listen. Now, I don't, I don't know that anybody was converted because of me talking with them at work, but I could do it because they were interested. It made people stop and step back and think about it. Think about their mora- uh, mortality. I started to say morality. Well, maybe it made them think about their morality too. But they had something happen in their lives that made them, whoa, I, I got to stop and smell the roses for a minute, right? Or I got to figure out what this is all about. I mean, if they can just fly an airplane into a building and kill 3,000 people, what's the point? 
So it was easier, right? People were more receptive at that time. I've been out of the country. Went to Nicaragua with a Latin American mission once. And we went knocking doors about every day. And of course, it's a very poor place. If you've never been to a third world country, you don't know how good you got it. But those people were very receptive. They wanted to hear what you had to say. I'm not one to necessarily go knocking doors all the time. I'm not sure that's the best way to evangelize. It's something we do, and I think it's a good thing. Who's to say it's not? But when you knock doors around here, what do you usually get? No, thank you. But down there, you can knock doors anywhere. Of course, a lot of times it was a cinder block house with a dirt floor. They want to know what you had to say. So there are times when people are more receptive. And it's wonderful, very encouraging, isn't it? That to see you're sowing a seed and people are taking it in. Perhaps they were already prepared for it. Perhaps there's something else that occurred to cause them them to be more receptive. But probably more times than not when we've talked to someone, it's on hard ground, isn't it? It can be a bit discouraging. We often benefit from the sowing of others. We might think we have sown seed when someone else really did it, right? Maybe it was done years ago and someone never received it, never obeyed the gospel, never did anything about what they had heard, and now they're ready. We might reap what someone else did. Reaping is not all to reflect the hard work that has been done, right? And we should be careful not to get too boastful about what we're doing when we're working in the field. Sometimes it's not so much us as what others have already been doing. This was the case in Samaria. Jesus did the sowing, but the disciples were able to do the reaping. The woman did the sowing in the city, and Jesus and the disciples did the reaping. So... They didn't occur, or they didn't necessarily, uh, they weren't necessarily done by the same people, but it was a close time together. This is often the case today, right? There have been times when a lot of sowing is being done, lives are influenced by godly examples of other Christians, and souls are being taught. Yet the reaping is not enjoyed by those doing the sowing. Have you ever had a family member who you've known, I don't know, all your life, they've never obeyed the gospel? They've been hearing the gospel their whole life, or at least for many years, that they haven't decided to obey. And then one day, boom, they say, I want to be a Christian. That ever happened to you? I know there's some in here that probably has. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen when you're working in the field. You just don't know. You never know who's going to respond, who's going to respond immediately, or who's going to respond several years later. It might be a long time after we're gone before someone responds. So that can be a frustrating thing, obviously, right? In such cases, the sowing and reaping occur very far apart. And this can become, you know, misinterpretation. 
you can get the idea that if I'm working, I ought to see results, right? I ought to see fruit. I mean, you get that in your jobs, right? You know, I sit down at the end of the year, well, every quarter I have a review with my boss, right? Especially at the end of the year. And he wants to know, what have I done for him lately? You know, I may have done great things last year. I may have done wonderful things two years ago. But if I haven't done anything this year, I'm going to get a bad review, right? I might even not get a raise, God forbid. In fact, I might even lose my job over that. See, we can see the same kind of thing when we're working, and we can even say to our boss, I've been working hard, but I'm just not getting results. And all he wants to see is that bottom line, you know? I don't care so much what you've been doing is what's the result? I haven't seen any results. We can see that. In fact, we do see that, right? When we're working in the kingdom. It can be frustrating. And then there's times when, you know, at my job, I might be working pretty hard. And I might be producing a lot of fruit. Oh, but then I get in a meeting and some other dude claims credit for it. You ever had that happen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you don't feel too good about that, do you? In the same sense, we can reap where others have sown. But that's not a bad thing. Yeah, in a job, that, that's kind of bad. But we can reap where others have sown. And that's what we're seeing here. That's what Jesus is mentioning. One sows, another reaps. In fact, it can become disheartening to where you kind of just want to say, I've had it. I'm tired of doing this. Not seeing any results. Nothing's happening, right? A failure to reap does not always reflect, reflect the hard work being done. Whenever to sow appear to produce little fruit, we should not just give up. We should not just draw conclusions hastily, right? It can lead to discouragement at times. It can lead to a possible misjudgment of others. They're just never going to listen. They're never going to do anything. But you never really know, right? Never really know. One sows, another reaps. So if that's the case, what are we to do? What should we do? Should we just give up? Should we just say, I'm not going to try anymore. I'm not going to. Keep going. I'm going to read something from 1 Peter here. Let me get over there. 1 Peter 3. Just read the first two verses there. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. First and foremost, in the process of sowing, is we are to be good examples, always. Peter just says, wives, be good Christians. Wives, subject to your husbands. Especially if they're not Christians, that they may be one. We should never just give up, quit being a good example to others because we're not getting any results. Of course, we should all be ready to teach the first principles, the plan of salvation, and we should be exam uh, providing a good example. 
And there may be times when a little fruit, look at Jeremiah, prophesied for about 50 years with very little result. You know, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, right? For a reason. They wouldn't listen. Jesus' disciples had times when few would heard, few would listen, right? It happens. But guess what? The word will accomplish its purpose. Turn over to Isaiah. Let's read a verse out of chapter 55. Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You see, God's word doesn't return void. God's word is sufficient to convert the sinner. It's sufficient to do the work to convert the sinner. Well, what's that mean? What's that mean for us? Turn over to Ezekiel there. Chapter 3. Verse 16, Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and give him no warning. When I say to, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from the wickedness, nor from the wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. Our job is to sow. Right? Our job is to deliver the word. God only holds us responsible for that. It's up to the hearer to decide. They have a choice, just like you did, just like you do, to obey, to believe, to have faith. And even if we never reap that harvest, we should be rejoicing in the fact that we're working in the kingdom. How many times we talked about it in here? The church... Is what God established on earth to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is reigning in that kingdom today. We should be joyous. We should be rejoicing that we have work to do. We have work to do while we're here. And we may not see the fruit of that labor in our lifetime. We may not. But we should rejoice in knowing we have something that's been given to us by God to do in the kingdom. Not only that, we should be diligent in reaping the harvest as well. There may be times when you get to reap some what, the harvest of what someone else has sown, right? That may happen. Um, you may have a family member that heard the gospel for years, but it took someone else coming in and just saying, hey, why haven't you obeyed the gospel? Hey, 
Why don't you believe? You know the truth. Why don't you respond to it? Sometimes that's what it takes. And then there's sometimes that someone may just come to us ready to obey the gospel, right? They realize they're sinners, and they realize they've got to do something about it. That happens too. There might be times when there's much reaping with little effort. <clears throat> In all this, whether we're reaping or, or not reaping or whatever we're doing, we're working hard, we never should be boasting, right? It's never about us. Remember John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. We're given a mission, we're to do work, but when we come to that great end of the year review in heaven, all we want to hear is well done, good and faithful servant, right? And be humble about it. It's not about what we did, it's what he does through us. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. This is a wonderful verse. Chapter 4 and verse, uh, let's start with 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's not us that's doing it, folks. It's the word. It's God. His word is sharper than a two-edged sword. You heard, you know, we, we, we talk about, especially as children, bringing your sword, right? We've got hearts to pierce, folks. We don't do it. It's the word that does it. 1 Corinthians 3. I know we're running out of time. Read this passage real quick. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers to whom ye believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Are we not workers in the vineyard of the Lord? Yes. Let us not hesitate to be sowers of the word and reapers of the harvest. Even if we sow where others might reap, or even if we, I mean, if we, if we I mean, I said that backwards, even if we reap where others sow, but then vice versa, right? We may not see the fruits of our labor, but that's okay. We are working in the vineyard. We are working in the field. The field that is white for harvest. Being humble about it, not boastful. Praising God and all we do. We have a mission, folks, and we need to be about it. Amen? All right. Time is up. Thanks for being here.